Welcome to Awaken, a podcast about being awake in today's world. Hi there, and welcome to season two of the Awaken podcast. This entire season, I'll be chatting with Aaron Goggins and Chani Singh, who are co-conspirators of mine on a project we're calling the Wild Seed Society. Wild Seed is a lot of things. It's a Buddhist-inspired BIPOC spiritual community, a platform for autonomous activist projects and resource sharing, and much more. It's a little hard to describe, but we're hoping this podcast helps to give it some shape as we move forward. Hope you enjoy this season. We're here today to talk about the design principles. This is our third episode on the design principles of the Wild Seed Society. Uh, Aaron, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So we started off with Insight and talked a little bit about those principles and faithful witnessing and grieving history while leaving what no longer serves behind. Then we talked a little bit about interdependence on polyrhythm and coming together as a community. Now we're talking about transformation, which in our thinking is a mix of revolution and evolution. And we're talking about this the first day of February, about a month after a month after a fascist coup attempt in the United States. So it's an interesting time to talk a little bit about transformation and evolution and revolution. But in the Wild Seed Society, I think this principle is where a lot of what is generally considered political is sort of embodied in. It's how do we make change? How do we make change on the macro scale in terms of who has power in or over what? And also, how do we make change sort of on the internal scale? How do we change the way power is held and conceived and used and wielded in collaborative ways? And so that's a lot of what these principles cover. Got it. So let's dive in then. How do we think about transformation in the wild society and, and what does it mean? I think the easiest way to understand transformation is that it occurs when there's both a revolution and evolution happening at the same time. And so I think of a revolution as when there is a standing structure, whether it's a social structure or a societal structure or a power structure in a relationship, and the sort of places in that structure get replaced, usually when the bottom moves to the top, is how we think about a revolution. And it's a really seismic shift in the social relationships in a space or in the idea of like a technological or social revolution, where the zeitgeist is, where the energy is, what the main paradigm is. And that oftentimes when we think about revolution, the sort of hierarchical nature of society doesn't really change much. Hmm. We think of, particularly now with a lot of the color revolutions, we see these sort of political revolutions where maybe a military dictatorship is replaced with a party, but the system of society stays fundamentally the same. Aaron, sorry to interrupt. What do you mean by the color revolutions? Sorry, yeah. The color revolutions is a term that's given to a bunch of revolutions that happened in like the 90s and in early 2000s, like in Ukraine, is probably like there was that orange revolution there because there was a lot of sort of mass mobilized revolutions to displace dictators in a bunch of countries. And they got their name in part because the way that the protesters were identified, a lot of times they would wear one color to a protest and and so that became their name. And a lot of them promised democratic reforms in society 
And sometimes those democratic reforms happened, but oftentimes the like, am I actually able to live a fundamentally different life? Am I able to articulate my liberation differently? Those questions don't change that much, right? I can try to answer that for me. One of the things about revolution is that without moving hearts and minds, changing the people on top doesn't actually impart or build the kind of trust needed to actually have change, right? And so I think so much of what compassionate agitation and healing confrontation are about are about closing the gap between sort of where the heart is, where the individual and collective heart is, and the world that we want. And so the way that activism tends to typically go is to focus on the ends and to try to get the thing that's wanted working within the current paradigm of power and control and hierarchy. And so if we grab after control in the way that we see it today, right, we would try to grab after like the people who stormed the Capitol did, like the reins of government. But to hold the reins of government does not mean that we have the power of the government and the moral authority of the government or those sorts of things. So I think that like the color revolutions are probably an interesting example of if it doesn't actually result in change, it means that some of that underlying work to like architect the revolution didn't include like bringing people along in a way that allowed us to actually shift things and change things. That's really well said, Ravi. I think a thing that I would add too is like, why we focus on healing confrontation and compassionate agitation. It's not that there aren't people who are bad actors. You know, it's not that we're saying that like everybody who does something that we disagree with is like a core wound and that they're just like, they really mean well, but you know, they have a different background. Any political program or ideology has to contend with people just being self-interested assholes, you know, people who had options and chose an easier one because they could take things and live with the consequences, they decided to keep taking things. I think that's always a part of it, but I think for most people, most people mean well most of the time, and most people are caught between some rock and a hard place, right? That like, we create a social reality together, and people are trying to meet just basic human needs. And the only ways they're given to meet those needs are extracting of other people. But as inefficient or irrational or just plain dumb as any aspect of our system is, it usually fits a need for some people and usually a great deal of people, right? Like our healthcare system is absurd, but there's a lot of people that like work in it and like they may not like how, 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 how it functions. They may not want to have massive insurance companies, but like 10 million people are employed. And we live in a system in which like, you have to be employed to pay rent and get food. And so we can call the insurance system evil. I would. I think it's mostly pushed by money. But the people who work in it, whether they agree with us or not, like we have to figure out some way to continue to meet the needs that that job is meeting. And that's money. But it's also purpose, right? That like they go to a place every day and help people get something as messed up as it might be, as much as they might like their boss, as much as they like may not be able to help people in the way they want. There's generally some other non-monetary benefits that people get from the thing that they do every day. It's kind of hard. Humans, as much as the right might want to make us, you know, economic actors, it's really hard to just do something for the money every day when it's only the money. Well, actually, I would say that's in some ways why the right tends to couple so hard with religion in some way, shape, or form, because you have to give people a sense of purpose. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really great example. And so generally, 
when you get to the people who actually could do something different, there's a deep fear. If you convince people, like, hey, this is the better thing to do, people are deeply attached to the way that things have been happening, in part because the known creates some security, even if the known is terrible. People have figured out all of these adapted behaviors. And for something like capitalism that's been around now for 400 years, the adaptive behaviors of capitalism are pretty intense. And they included forgetting a lot of other ways that we used to know how to do things. Mm -hmm. So in the Wild Seed Society, we're often trying to get people to take money. And this is probably the most contentious aspect (laughs) of what we do is saying like, hey, we raised all this money. People were so excited about our idea and our like desire to pay people. And then people don't want to take it because under capitalism, money always comes with strings and you have to earn it and you have to prove that you can do it. And then what does it say about you as a person if you don't take it? All of those are sort of like maladaptive strategies that we've learned to make capitalism work. And you need them, right? If you just take money from people and you don't do like a really great job, but go above and beyond. Under capitalism, a lot of people will look at you kind of funny and be like, oh, they're flaky. They don't follow through, which then means you get less opportunities, which then means eventually you don't have rent money or insurance money, right? Like it's actually as unhealthy and inefficient as it is. It's actually necessary given what other people expect. And so when you have these sort of things, you can convince somebody that, hey, no, like, we're really just going to give you money just to give you money. And, like, we can talk through it and talk through the weirdness of it. It's not helpful when somebody's worried that they're going to disappoint you or whatever to just be like, you're insufficiently radical. If you are a real communist, you take this money. Like, that's not an effective way to help people shift. And so engaging people with compassion is helpful, right? To be like, no, we're actually going to hold you through this. But it's compassion and agitation. Because people will stick with the known, even when it's bad, even when it's exploitative of them and other people. And so what we've learned is you have to love people from where they're at to where you want them to go. But that doesn't mean accepting the what's often called like the yuppie Nuremberg defense, right? We did it for the mortgage. Like I had to pay a mortgage. There was no way out of it. Like it's helping people be like, I understand why you did this. The need that you're meeting is real, but there's a better way. And that risk is worth it either for your joy or for the ethics of the situation. And that is actually a more effective way to get people to change. Because if you don't love people and you are asserting that you have power to control how their lives work, people will revolt. And if you don't love people and they revolt, you will misread why they're revolting and you'll play into a habit of controlling them because you're like no this is just better and if they're against it they must be x versus like all of these weird human reasons that people push against revolutionary change i just briefly wanted to call out yuppie nuremberg defense (laughs) hilarious that's great it's the Aaron Eckhart quote from thank you for smoking which is an interesting movie that's problematic in all sorts of ways but he does do a really good job of explaining like, yeah, all the people that you think are evil have kids and mortgages and divorce payments. Mm-hmm. And like doing it for the mortgage is a much more common reason that evil things happen than somebody having some like terrible ideology, right? Totally. Yeah, I mean, the number of times my parents 
we, you know, we would get into arguments. My dad is a landlord and we have just gotten into, I feel like being a landlord is, it's just very unethical. Like I just, I just, I don't, I, it's hard for me to imagine like trying to make profit because you're in this system. Like you got a better credit score, which basically like my dad grew up working class. So he didn't like inherit money or get a high paying job and like save up. He just like made some lucky breaks, got into college. And because he like has some professional credentials, he could get a loan that a lot of other working class or poor people couldn't. And that loan allowed him to like in recessions when other people were losing their houses, buy houses on the cheap. And that just feels super exploitive to me. And me and my dad would like argue. And he was like, yeah, well, do you want to go to college or not? Because like nobody's going to give a loan to an 18 year old. You got to put some money down. You're never going to work enough a minimum wage. So if you want to go to that school, you're going to have to take landlord money. And he's just like, you know, we could have lived in the projects where I grew up, but I didn't want to. So I like, you know, this is how I made my money. Me and my dad go back and forth. And we're like, well, there's, you put in all the energy. There's all sorts of other ways you could have made money that were more ethical, blah, 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 blah. And it's complicated. It's complicated. But my dad is like moving closer to me because what I don't say to my dad, which would be crazy, is like, no, you should have let us starve. And like, that's just like, that's just an absurd argument to make to my father. Like he did it for me, even if it's not what I asked for. I think it's kind of absurd, even though I do think the left does this all the time to blame people for their good intentions, but we can actually separate what they were trying to do with how they went about doing it. But yeah, so I think that's the first principle. I think the metaphor of landlord and landlordship and owning land in that way is an interesting bridge to the next thing we were going to talk about, which was building and sharing power in ways that disrupt conventional hierarchies. How does that play into our design principles? I think that oftentimes what both domination logic and capitalism as a form of domination logic are really good at is sort of just like allowing you to like take only specific risks and opening up this like false narrative that like there's a path towards not having to risk anything. And so we create contracts so that it's really clear what's going to happen with a relationship when it's like, hey, no, don't worry about it, Ravi. Like, pay me whatever you can this month. We'll figure it out. The reason we have contracts is because we want to hedge against the risk that Ravi's just like, oh, okay, he's my friend. I guess I don't have to pay him. I can spend this money on, like, weed and alcohol. We all know how Ravi's living. No judgment. <laughs> JK, but like, you know, what capitalism does is like, it says, hey, you could do that, but then you like also might end up in court where we can seize all of your assets and like garner your wages if you don't pay rent or we can just kick you out. It allows you as a landlord to say like, you don't have to get in that weird conversation with Ravi about where are you spending your money and like, how come you couldn't pay rent? It's like, cool. If you don't pay, you'll just get evicted. It shares that illusion that we don't have to care. We don't have to step into that like murky relational waters. Mm-hmm. But in reality, relationships allow for a lot more flexibility and resilience than transactional exchanges. You know, no matter what happens in the landlord's life, like you can negotiate things, right? And so if you think about a cooperative situation where people co-own it, 
there's all sorts of things that you could do to move equity or deal with people not being able to pay rent a couple of months, right? Like it could be like, great, you could choose to lower your shares of ownership in a co-op a month that you can't pay rent. And then other people who want to keep paying could like increase their shares or everybody could just agree for a set amount of time. Like you're not going to pay rent. And like, we all chip away at this mortgage at a lower rate. The more relational you get, the more flexibility you have to deal with all the ups and downs. And when we talk about on a systems-wide level, putting people's needs first means that when you get into situations like there's a bubble bursting and the government always tries to decide, well, the whole system collapses if we give money to individuals because who knows what they'll do with it. Companies will go bankrupt, whatever. And so to keep the system in place, they often invest in the rich people and keep it going because that's the people that they care about. But if you create a system where there is no owning interest that you want to like maintain in the status quo, there's just humans with human needs, you have a lot more flexibility to say like, actually, I don't need to make a profit on this property this month. We can hold off on doing repairs in order to like keep down the amount of money that needs to go, right? Um, and so the more cooperative and the more horizontal it is, the easier it is to actually meet people's human needs because you don't have those political or economic needs that are about control and power entering into the equation at all. I'm not going to lie. While you were speaking about that, something that came up for me is, and I can like, I can hear my mom's voice saying it too, is um, what about the people who are going to take advantage of that? Like, how do you build things with those elements in mind that, yeah, there are going to be folks who might like, take advantage of the relational community that you've built around these structures and what do we do? Like, what are the choices that need to be made there? Or like, are there choices that need to be made? How do you plan for that? There's definitely choices that need to be made. The idea take advantage is socially constructed, right? It's saying that there's mm -hmm. an agreement that we make and then some people are going to go above and beyond that agreement, right? Either they're going to give... Uh, too much in order to take control of the situation or they're going to not give enough and they're going to profit from you giving extra, right? So all of that is socially constructed. I don't think that people are inherently any way about it, right? Like I think capitalism makes everything transactional. And as soon as you start thinking in the terms of transaction, that's when the idea of taking advantage even comes into play, right? Like you have to be put in a strategic mindset where there's winners and losers in order to think about taking from somebody else in order to win. And I think there's all sorts of ways you can set up the rules of a society in which like, that's just not a meaningful thing. One of the mm -hmm. things about it is money, right? That like, as long as there's money, taking advantage of people makes sense in a rational way, as long as you can get money from it. Because then with money, you can get everything else. But in a situation where everything's not for sale, there is very little that it makes sense for me to do if I'm in relationship with you that harms that relationship. Because the relationship itself is the way that I get resources. So if you can go to the next person in town and say like, yeah, Aaron never did the dishes. So like, he's really hard to live with. Like, that's a reason for me to do the dishes. If I don't want to live with you, I have to move with somebody else, right? And if mm -hmm. there's no money exchanged and there's nobody willing to be like, I guess we'll deal with a bad roommate because we just need the $400. If you take away that kind of thing, 
why are people getting in relationship with each other? Well, it's because they want something and somebody else has it, right? But when it's relational, it becomes really difficult in those sort of situations to keep screwing people over and still get your needs met. Mm -hmm. There's no cover. There's no cover for for being a bad person, right? (laughs) And the capitalism gives you cover for being a bad person because as long as you can pay for it, people will do business with you because if they don't, they'll starve, right? And that's always a reason for doing it. So I think that's part of it. Another thing is we often forget that like nobody needs to be a landlord. That's not Mm -hmm. a human opportunity that people need a right to. Just like nobody needs to be a slave owner. And when you stop slavery, you're not removing people's inherent human right to own another person. Like that's absurd. Everybody needs housing. So the question is not, how do we keep people from taking advantage? I think it's how do we get everybody housing? And if I have housing, I don't really care if you did less work than me and also have housing. What I care about is if I had to sacrifice and work a job that I hate to get my housing and you just got it for free, that might feel unfair. But if everybody just gets housing because you're a human being and I know that whether I work or not, I get housing, it doesn't make sense to be jealous that somebody else got exactly what you got for the exact same reason that you got it. And I think that's the thing that we forget about, right? Is that if everybody gets their needs met with dignity, it's very rare that somebody will be mad that somebody else also got their needs met. Mm. And that when we talk about all of these researching they do about the humans and exchanging and, and fairness and blah, 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 it's that like we are a weird society right? A Western educated industrialized, I can't remember what all the acronyms stand for, right? But that like 90% of psychological research is done in Western industrial countries. And like a huge percentage of research is done. The participants are like college students in American and Canadian and UK universities, which are just like not representative of how other people make decisions that people who aren't in those like hyper rationalized hyper exploited societies make decisions because capitalism being exploited conditions you to worry that other people are going to exploit you which then conditions you to exploit people before you get exploited but if we take away that basic exploitation i don't think that people just you know naturally rise up to exploit other people mm. I mean, I think that's true, but I do think that Johnny has a point in that there is definitely a dynamic of people taking advantage of a system that rubs other people the wrong way that, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but brings down some of the more communist vibes, for lack of a better way of... Yeah, like, those are arguments that I hear so often, like, for example, welfare, you know, the argument against, like, welfare in Canada and and the support of that is like, well, you know, we should have other rules and, and... stricter guidelines about who can apply and like checking in on folks because people will just take advantage of it. But in listening to you, Aaron, speak to like, if we pull money out, it's like money is a latent motivator, like in a lot of things that we do. And if we extract that, and if we extract relying on capitalism to get our needs met and like the struggle that we each individually have to go through and what that different struggle looks like. If we just like eliminate that and eliminate money being that like latent motivator, like you don't have to fuck with those people, right? Like you're like, oh man, to your point, this roommate is messy. He's rude to me all the time. X, Y, Z. 
I'm out, right? There's nothing locking you in, trapping you in to being that person's roommate, to being in relationship with these folks. If you walk around and you see like, this person is taking advantage of this system, but like at the end of the day, everyone's golden, like that person might be doing less work. Well, if it's just a given that that's like a part of what we've built so that everyone can just like have their housing, food, basic needs met, and you, no matter what you do, you don't have to struggle to have your basic needs met. I wonder how much of that like animosity, that like concern with fairness and the struggle and like how hard you had to work to get those needs met like disappears and is like maybe healed so that other folks' choices don't bother you. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think that's it. I think welfare is a great example because I don't think anybody cares about welfare fraud. Well, a lot of conservatives do. No, I think a lot of conservatives care about race and use welfare fraud to talk about black people profiting off a system, but almost nobody cares because it's so little money. Like, there's not a rational argument that it's unfair, because if you think people doing nothing and getting money is bad, then you would also care about, we pay agro companies money not to grow corn, to keep it low. And that's a way bigger version of welfare. If people think that the government shouldn't pay people for doing nothing, then the like Lockheed Martin billion dollar bills to build planes that the Air Force doesn't want is like a corporate welfare on a much bigger scale. But people think welfare and they think black people and they think black people and they think this mass of people who are trying to undermine the Mayflower Compact version of America. And that's what they're mad about. People aren't mad that people are getting paid for doing nothing because we literally elected a dude who paid no taxes and, and just got a lot of subsidies and got money. If, if you hated that, you would hate rich people, but they don't. They hate black people. And that's not actually about people getting things that they don't deserve. That's about an anxiety that you've spent so much of your existence on this continent with your foot on somebody's neck that you're worried about what happens and what they'll do to you as soon as you take the foot off their neck. And that conservatives use that racial anxiety to fuel a push against socialism. And if you see like Venezuela, it's a very similar thing, right? That like the Afro-Venezuelans super here for socialism the middle class lighter skinned venezuelans are like no they're taking away from the system because we earned this even though they are related to the people who conquered and used genocide to get all of their land it's people who got things without deserving them that are worried that if we have another system that they'll have less or even worse for some of them people will have the same amount and they'll no longer be special that I think that is a much bigger driver. On the micro scale, I think it's a series of different questions, right? That like intentional communities face this a lot, right? That mm -hmm. like, how do you convince people to put in shared work and like do the dishes and do chores and all of those things? Like that I think is a much more accurate thing because that's where people really get upset that people aren't putting in their fair share. And I would say that in those situations, I think the thing that we often don't think about is, one, how much the fair share is still based on, like, puritanical beliefs about, like, work is inherently good and putting in more effort into certain things, like, means that you deserve more. And two, 
people like trying to fit like a nuclear family model onto another thing and having expectations of people. And three, people being really destroyed by their life under capitalism and like not having the energy or bones to like put energy into community for certain ways, right? But like we talked about this in a couple of other sessions, but people don't want to do chores when they're set up as chores, right? When it's like we put a hierarchy of there's leisure time, which is the best thing you can do with your life. And then there's work, which is like, you know, it's good if, if you have a good job, but it's like you're contributing. And then chores is drudgery. And it's the thing that you just like have to do to be an adult, but you mostly just like want a child or a woman to do it for you. Like that's the patriarchal work. And we set up that hierarchy, invest in that hierarchy, and then are surprised that people don't want to do the things at the bottom of that hierarchy versus creating a structure where like we all cook together and we all clean together and like that's joyous and we're singing while we do it. And the reason that intentional communities generally can't do that is because they have to work. It's actually not, I think, a failure of the, how the intentional community is set up itself. It's a failure of people go out into the world, do all these things that are not transformational, and then try and limit transformation to this one mm -hmm. five-bedroom house that they're all like living in. And that, I think, is where the struggle is. But I think there's real problems in moving to a world where everybody gets their needs met with dignity. But I don't think the problem is the one that we often assume of people taking advantage of that generosity. Fair. Appreciated that share, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. That was dope. <laughs> <laughs> like, weirdly, what's going through my head right now is I'm just sitting here like, you know, I think about my partner and I, and he he has a hard time with fairness. He has a hard time with like, this doesn't feel fair to me. And what you were saying, like, it just overlays to me, like, okay, the new question in my head that I want to like take forward is how is he not getting his basic needs met? Putting that framework on being like, is that what's threatening the current situation? It's not that like, it's unfair. It's just that there's different struggle levels or something like that. And like overlaying that our personal relationships to make our relationships more transformational anyways that was just a thought that I was having while you were speaking was like what if we approached all relationships like that and just on the micro scale we can transform how we interact by knowing that these frameworks are in place and it is so much more than just fairness it is that that latent motivator of like money and the struggle to have to do a ton of different things you don't want to have to do just to make sure that you have housing and food and all this and if you don't do those things, you'll lose it. That's scarcity. Yeah. There's this great book. And I was reviewing it for an essay I'm writing. What is it? Uh, seven Lessons About the Brain. I don't know why I'm showing this to computer. This isn't a video. This is a podcast. But it's uh, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett has a book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And in one of them, she writes about how one of the things that makes humans unique is that like when a monkey is born, it can do most of the full monkey things like within a couple of days. It can hold its head up and keep its eyes open. It can grasp and hold on to its mother almost immediately. And humans are born with a brain like literally unfinished. It takes like 25 years for us to like learn until our like 
brains get to some level of like put together and finished the way that like deer and other mammals get it in like a week. And what that means is that like our cultures shape our mind in a really fundamental way. That there's a base level humanness there, right? There's like a template, but that template is flexible enough to be capable of being molded into dozens and dozens of different kinds of minds. And that I don't think that anybody's inherently lazy or inherently much. I think whatever is in that template is really rudimentary, right? Like Mm -hmm. that humans engage in social activity and that maybe we have a tendency to be, what is the word that one neuroscientist used? It was uh, uh, aggressively collaborative. (laughs) I love that right it's like it's not that humans compete against individuals that's actually not how human behavior works we collaborate in groups and then those groups compete with other groups and that's actually a much better example right it's not that we're like inherently like good and like always like hang out it's that like we have to be together yeah like we're pushed to be together and then we kind of like get worried when our sense of group integrity is threatened and we compete with other groups to keep our group going together and that's like the fundamental human template but like what that competition is how big that group is is all socially constructed and that i'm not going to argue that we could just like institute socialism tomorrow and Mm -hmm. just like take out big businesses and everybody would share i think (laughs) i think people would go crazy in a socialist system because they wouldn't know how to find belonging or their self-worth. What I'm suggesting is that there's a life world we can build. And that those are like the two other design principles of Wild Seed, building ecologies of liberation and solidarity and building towards life world and a communal praxis, right? That, That there is a way that we can set ourselves up to be collectively in which collaboration is more organic. Mm. collaboration can arise more spontaneously if we set ourselves up for collaboration, right? And to me, this is sort of like the way the Buddhists think of the mind, right? That there is this seed consciousness and all of these ideas, exploitation, racism, sexism, solidarity, liberation, socialism, it's all in our brain and what we water grows. And if Mm. we create a society in which competition and a specific rigid amount of fairness that includes punishment if we think things are unfair, if we water those things, then we're going to get certain kinds of minds. And those minds are going to do things that are along the lines of unfairness and taking advantage. But if we water the seeds of collaboration, if we water the seeds of like competing towards our highest good, right? The end of competition doesn't have to be the death of the loser, right? The Mm -hmm. end of competition can be well, like, I guess you do the beat and I do the melody of this song we're playing, like, right? It doesn't have to be all death and lack of survival. And so I think when we look at the Wild Seed Society and how we think about revolution, right, there are certain things that exist, like, I would argue, the state of the U.S. government that stop us from watering the seeds of liberation, And that abolishing those things, like abolishing the police, would allow us to articulate liberation. But there also has to be a process of allowing ourselves to be enculturated over a long term with other structures in our daily life of interacting that support that. 
And I think that's the real challenge of revolution is how do you transition from a society in which we are conditioned to fight each other and steal from each other into a society where we collaborate? That is what the heart of what socialism is, right? Socialism isn't the goal. Socialism is the process of transitioning from capitalism into communism. And communism is the from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? A world where everybody can get their needs met with dignity. And the real question of social transformation is how do we, through compassionate agitation and through building alternatives and through subverting empire, how do we help people move from where they're at to this world, or more accurately, set of worlds that we think would be better, would allow people to articulate their liberation and live together in a free society of equals. Thanks so much for listening. For more information on Wild Seed and to get involved in any way, check out wildseedsociety.com. And we could always use a share, a like on whatever platform you're on. All that stuff really helps us rank on algorithms and reach more people and all that jazz. You know the drill. We've got more episodes on Wild Seed coming right up, so stay tuned. We're so, so excited to share this project with you. And again, you can check out more at wildseedsociety.com.